Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. My name is Casey Scott, and normally I'd say this is my friend, Dr. Matt Woolley, but unfortunately, due to a family emergency, he isn't able to be here today. So we'll give you more information about that when it becomes available, but the show must go on. We have a wonderful guest in studio today. Her name is Michelle Church. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you. And uh, you've got a story that revolves around addiction of a a loved one of addiction. And you've also got a big event uh, that you're a part of that's happening August 31st. First, let's talk about that. Tell me about that. Uh, So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You bet. Um, August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. So it is a day that we take um, a moment to remember those we've lost to um, overdose and um, we've turned the event into something that we can also use to help people in recovery. So let me ask you this. Do you know a lot about the numbers when it comes to overdose, uh, people overdosing? Um, to if, be, if you don't, it's okay. You know, it, it almost became um, almost like um, the election a couple of years ago when it became so sad. I stopped looking. And and, and, and it really is because you hear about it so much and it's just so heartbreaking. And um, a lot of people don't understand all the things that go into an overdose. There's an accidental overdose. There's a purposeful overdose and and, and, and mental illness. Yes. And, And it's people who have gotten sober and put some good amount of time behind them and then relapse and go back to the the amount they were using before they stopped. And that's what causes an overdose. That is primarily what causes an overdose, um, along with the new one, fentanyl. And fentanyl is, I mean, it, that's Russian roulette for everybody out there buying drugs off the street. I mean, it, it's its a killer. Yep. You can't, it's not like the olden days where you could take these drugs recreationally. You really do have to be aware every time. And, you know, I have kids that are of age and um, looking to experiment and I don't um, fall into the category of let's pretend like it's never going to happen. We talk about um, Narcan and Naloxone, the overdose drugs. We also talk about testing drugs so you can know what you're getting because there's plenty of artists that have died. Um, I mean, there's just it's it's rampant. So the stories are out there and you we just need to teach people to be responsible. So back to the event, uh, a night, a light to remember. A light to remember, yes. And uh, tell me, what does that mean and how can uh, the community get involved? So a light to remember, this is our fifth year in the event. Um, It started uh, along with a partnership with Utah State University um, where they had a facility um, in Davis, in Kaysville, that was next to a pond. So I was working with the recovery center at the time and we cooked up this idea to um, have this event on International Overdose Awareness Day where we could honor people that we had lost by um, having lanterns that people would dedicate and then put in the fa- into the pond at night. So it was a light to remember. We had some meditation. Um, and it started out as something that we could use to honor people that we have lost to overdose. Mm-hmm. But as that night occurred, um, it, it impacted me how much the night meant to those who were still in recovery. And so in that same pond that evening, we had people from the recovery house that were in kayaks out gathering up these lanterns that were on the pond. And and I watched them treat them as though they were actual lives. They were picking up and putting back in there. 
and they wanted to be so careful not to harm that memory. So I think it was it ended up being very impactful for the people who were in recovery. Um, and although a light to remember is though is a night dedicated to people we lost, it has really turned out to be about hope and about resources for moving forward. And so it, that was five years ago, and now it's expanding across the state. And you said this is primarily for the rural counties here in the state. Yeah, um, where the need is greatest, we know that. I mean, Utah statistically is number two in the nation right now as far as overdose deaths. So we do have a, a very big problem with it here. And in the rural, rural communities, you have multiple members of one family that have been affected, and not a lot of resources on how they can overcome things like that. So we started um, we started the event in Kaysville, but because we do have a great partner with Utah State University that has satellite extensions in a lot of different counties, we were able to focus that and find champions in those different counties who wanted to pick this up and um, host something so we could get naloxone out into the community and just raise that awareness about overdose. And being uh, Thursday's International Over- Overdose Awareness Day, October, uh, August 31st, you guys are doing something up at the state capitol as well. Uh, the state capitol has um, has been doing something on International Overdose Awareness Day for years. Um, this year, we are lucky enough to coordinate with them. So what we are hoping to do, they have programming that takes place up at the capitol. But again, we realize that... Um, People are not driving all over the state um, for this occasion, so we really want to bring access to them. Um, We were fortunate enough to um, collaborate with that community, and we're doing a shared moment of silence that everyone can participate in together. Um, In addition to that, um, there are ways that people can participate at home. We have kits that we'll send to your home that you can use to um, light your own light at home and and commemorate those people that you've lost. A light to remember is what it's all about. Now, I'm going to ask you a personal question, if that's all right. Sure. Are you an addict in recovery? I am not an addict in recovery. So how does somebody who's not an addict in recovery get involved in an organization like this or a night like this? Um, well, um, for me, how do, someone gets involved is usually you love someone who is struggling. And, and that's kind of what brought you uh, to us today. So I noticed that your demeanor changed a little bit when you thought about your loved one that was in uh, addiction. How does that story begin and how did it affect you? Mm, it began years ago. Um, I am one of six children and, um, my younger brother, Aaron, uh, sorry, he um, he started using heroin at a very young age. And that took a toll on him. It took a toll on you. It took a toll on the family. It, it Yes. Um, heroin is just a beast. Um, May heroin- I ask, did, I mean, you said he started heroin at a young age. Um not a lot of people start their journey with heroin. Was that his first taste into drugs and alcohol? He went there pretty quick. Um, and again, we grew up in a small town, Roy, Utah. So uh-huh. um, I think with less access of things to do and a lot less um, um, information and possibly some childhood trauma, um, he, yeah, he, I, I still, I've not been able to understand why, but he, he seemed to go there very quickly. And I guess I just answered my own question. I think that childhood trauma did have a lot to do with it, but 
Aaron started experimenting with um, heroin when he was probably 13 years old, if at the best. Um, and um, we lost Aaron at 42 to an overdose. So Now, we need to remind people that this is your story and not Aaron's story. And so tell me about how his addiction affected you through your life. Because we often say on this podcast that addiction is a family disease. I remember there was times uh, that I'd be fighting with my ex-wife, my mom, my kids. And I was like, what do you guys care this is me. This is my body. I'm doing what I want. You know, I'm not forcing this upon you guys. I'm not asking you guys to partake. I'm not asking you guys to do any of this. Why won't you just let me do what I want? And that was me in an addict mindset thinking I just need to feed my disease and do what I want to do and not realizing that my actions were affecting everybody around me. Yeah. I think um, as a loved one of someone who is struggling, you can hear those words coming out of your mouth. But when you look them in the eye, you know that they're struggling. Mm-hmm. So you have to really go way beyond what the words are, what the words are saying to you and what the actions that are being done to you and, you know, look into the, their heart. And, and, and that's, you know, uh, that's got to be the maddening part to be on the other side of that is, you know, seeing someone you love um, do things that they normally wouldn't do, seeing people you love lie to your face and, and, and you know that they don't want to, but they're so deep or in denial or ego or whatever it may be. They're just trying to get by and you can see they're hurt and they want help and you want to give them help. But for some reason, the two dots aren't just connecting. Yeah, it's completely heartbreaking. And the stories that you have to tell yourself over and over and over again just to make it work and just to make the, the dots connect so you can live and, and be together um, because addiction makes people do pretty bad things. And um, there's a lot of forgiveness that has to go around that. And there's also a lot of understanding that you're no longer you know talking with that person in their essence as they knew them. They're, they're sick and um, trying to find the ways that you can – communicate with them, offer help to them when they're ready, um, and just being open to what they want to try as well. Often in addiction, we say, uh, love the addict, hate the disease. Uh, because addiction will make you cross lines that you never thought you would cross and make you do things that you thought you could never do. And as a loved one standing on the outside, seeing them do that, I, it, it's got to be heartbreaking. And I'm still remorseful and uh, trying to forgive myself and hoping those that I've wronged will forgive me. But it's a long road. So you said your brother started heroin right around age 13 and unfortunately overdosed at 42. Yeah. At 42. That's a long run. So, so many stories of heartache, hope, betrayal, lies, 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 living on my couch, living in a homeless center, being in prison, going to jail. And also, because I've had two years to live without Aaron, I'm, I remember all of the wonderful things he was too. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. I mean, cause I'm sure in that amount of time from 13 to 42, there were nights that you were 
waiting up uh, for him to come home or the phone would ring in the middle of the night and wondering what was going to be on the other end. A lot of sleepless nights. But looking back over that amount of time, were there things that you did right and were there things that you did wrong? And could you share those with us? Mm. Um, uh, well, I'll start with the fact that losing Aaron was my greatest failure um, that I consider. And I know, um, I know it wasn't my failure, but I tried really hard. My family tried really hard to keep him with us. So I have to reconcile that pain with knowing, um, that we, we did, we, we gave it the good fight and we did all that we could. I think one of the things that I would I would definitely do different after knowing that I'm coming out of this um, this failure phase is um, being open for what they need. Um, Aaron, first and foremost, um, I wish we would have been able to know about childhood trauma and address that versus, you know, here's um, a recovery center or here are all of these um, ancillary things instead of finding the root of what what made that happen in the first place. I wish I would have known enough to go deep in into that. But one of the things specifically with Aaron was because he was on heroin for so long and um, oftentimes I would call him a functioning addict, which I also don't really believe those words exist anymore. Um, but Aaron was on Suboxone um, on and off for different years. And I remember I, I would just I was so naive to it and I would think, why did you get on one drug just to get on another? This is this is wrong. What are you doing financially? This is crippling. But had I understand what I if I would have known what I know now, I would have supported him mm-hmm. in Suboxone. And it's it's like someone who is diabetic and then they need insulin. You don't get insulin once and then don't need insulin again. You keep getting insulin or you die. So harm reduction, um, you know, if Suboxone is what you need that keeps you alive. I've heard many stories of that can be the thing that's right for you. Um, so I wish I would have supported him in that and in not using alone, even if he would have had to like wake me up in the middle of the night, um, not having someone, you know, die alone would be, um, a blessing. Now you said something that was interesting. You have to find what's right for you. And that's something that I believe in when it comes to addiction and recovery is you got to find what works for you. I don't have the answers. I can tell you what works for me and what's keeping me sober. And that's not to say that it will work for you, but it makes sense to me. So there seems to be, uh, in this state or in the, in the nation or the community that, that there's not a one size fits all for this answer. And you can't break people down and be like, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do this. Then you're going to get off this and you're going to get off this. Well, that might work for somebody and might make sense to them, but for someone else, it won't. And maybe they need to be on Suboxone for the rest of their lives. But if that keeps them alive and it keeps them here, then I say whatever works for you works for you. So could you talk to me a little bit about what harm reduction is, what you consider it to be? Harm reduction, I think, is um, where we're not turning our backs on um, uh, people in recovery. We understand that there was an atrocity that was created that made this mess. And now we want to be here to support the people who were affected by the opioid crisis. So um, 
so looking at each person individually and um, and understanding what it means for them, sometimes they're not ready to be in recovery, which means they're going to keep using. And that is the reality of the situation for years. So Aaron, how do we keep them safe? Do we do things like needle exchange? Ab- do we give them a safe environment to use yep, in? Yep. Uh, do we, you know, rather than let them fend on their streets and, and sleep in unsavory places and stuff like that, because that's what they're forced to do now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we've seen really great um, results from, from um, places that are introducing these safe injection sites and it's having a positive impact on the community. So um, having safe injection sites, reducing stigmas around things like Suboxone that will um, help prolong people in recovery. Um, these are all different things. Um, I know another thing that worked um, that has been working in my family, there's been we've had several instances of addiction um, and my my younger sister who also started using drugs about the same time, her drug of choice was meth and um, she was her path to recovery was absolutely different and now she's a successful amazing person but it, she didn't do the same things um, as Aaron did and you have to be able to talk to the people where they're at and meet them where they are in the recovery but also um, be aware of what is out there for them um, for my dad he is a he's a Vietnam veteran and he's been prescribed opioids his entire life. He often jokes that he has a safe that is full of enough that he could light a Bogdan. And I'm sure he does. Um, but on the day that we found out that my brother had died of um, an overdose was the first day that my dad and I started using cannabis together. And so cannabis seems to work for you. I, I've been uni- using cannabis for years. I mean, sneaking it to cancer patients before it was legal just because I believed in the the power of that medicine and um, how it could really help people. I I had hoped at certain times it could help Aaron, um, and it and it never seemed to. But I I see people every day that it works for. And for my dad, he never. I mean, he has plenty of opioids. Aaron would steal my dad's opioids, obviously on a regular basis. But my dad didn't. Um, he wasn't really drawn to opioids. Um, he stayed away from cannabis because of his military experience and because he didn't want to lose any of his benefits. But as soon as it became legal, um, he started um, entering that world. And now, like my relationship with my dad over the last two years has been different than it has been my whole life. It's so fascinating to see how everyone's journey is a little bit different. And I think that's one thing that we need to do when it comes to talking about addiction and recovery. A lot of times when we talk about an addict, it is with sorrow, is with disdain. Uh, and so we've got to remember that they're people. And they're trying to do the best that they can. And so I love when you say meet them at their level. You know what I mean? I, I remember when I was active in my addiction, people were like, just stop. And I was like, well, yeah, no crap. I've tried that. You know what I mean? It's not as easy as just stopping. And for, but don't get me wrong. Some people have white knuckled it and stopped, but trust me, I did everything I could to just stop on my own. And it wasn't until I accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic and I was willing to find help and find resources that were going to help me on my journey. Now I look at recovery like a buffet, um, like I go down the the line and I go, this makes sense to me. I like meditation. I like breathing. 
Uh, I like exercise. I like reading and I like communication and I like being honest. I like being authentic. And so if I put those all on my plate and I consume those or focus on those daily, I can keep my sobriety and it makes sense to me. But all those things on somebody else's plate might not do it. Mm-hmm. So we've got to figure out what makes sense for you and what will help you get on that road to recovery. I, I love it. And I love thinking about it like a buffet because, you know, even traditionally like Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't allow you to, to they don't allow you to use anything else. Mm-hmm. So if you are medicating with cannabis or any other product, you have to go into those meetings and lie. And what is that doing? It's that's the thing that you're trying to get out of. Well, they say in addiction, our secrets keep us sick. And so if you're going in there with the secret, that's why that's why I do this podcast. And that's why I'm so open about my recovery is because if I feel like I got a secret on you or if I feel like I'm getting away with something, th- that's my jam. Yeah. Th- then I feed on that. So I just want everybody to be on the open page with me and I'm going to let you know exactly what's going on with me. Now, when it comes to marijuana, I've never, tr- I, you know, in my recovery, I've never done it. Uh, and, and I don't have any anything against it. I just know from me and my recovery, it doesn't make sense. Right now, my life is going amazing and I'm completely happy. Do I have bad days? Sure, but not bad enough to where I need something to help me get through it. And the tools that I was taught in recovery and the tools that I've learned in my recovery seem to be working and seem to helping. And, but I don't look down upon anybody who does do, uh, you know, Right. Marijuana. I, I I think that, I mean, I, I wished that it would have worked for Aaron and it didn't. And now I actually work in cannabis and I host new patient events often. And I overhear people talk about how cannabis helped them with recovery. And I'll, I overhear these, these conversations and it's a little heartbreaking for me because I, I think, God, I wish, I wish that would have helped worked for me and it didn't, but I'm so glad that it works for you. Um, so again, like whatever it is, feast in that buffet on whatever is going to feed your soul and feed your recovery. But I think there's one other thing for me that was super important that that had I, had I realized I would have had a lot more grace for, and that is once you are in recovery, um, statistically, I mean, it's going to take at least five years for you to become safe again. And so some of the things that I had done with Aaron, you know, I, um, work to get him into different recovery programs and after 30 days or 60 days. Um, that was just really unrealistic. We needed to set up so many new life skills and what to do when the going gets rough. What what, what are the tactics that you're going to go to? So um, I wish I would have treated it as something that needed a lot more long-term care than just get over it. You can see this is harming you and it's harming all of us. Let's just move on. Like it doesn't work like that. And and furthermore, it takes a long time to really not be triggered and to not fall back into addiction once you've climbed your way out of it. So setting realistic expectations, not these short term. I mean, recovery is great. Um, the rehab centers are great. And I think that all of these could be part of your buffet. But but giving yourself grace, you and your family members grace to know that this takes a lot of time in order to become 
healed. You know, it's interesting talking to you because I'm just knocking on the door on my five-year chip. And uh, that's a, a, a milestone that I never thought that I would achieve. And I never thought I'd get a year. And I remember sitting in the in the rehab at two weeks thinking, I'll never get 30 days. And then I keep just nipping away at this time. And uh, it feels wonderful. And, and I'm very happy and blessed and fortunate and grateful for all the things that recovery has given me. But it's it's it's... Looking back now, and I see people who go into recovery and go, I'm going for 30 days, and that's all I got. And then you put them back in the same situation, and you wonder why they relapse. Because 30 days is is not nearly long enough. 30 days is long enough to get you off of the drugs that you're on, but it's not long enough to, to equip you and get you ready for what you're about to go against. Because once you get out of the rehab, that's when the real trial starts. Because you live in such a safe space inside those four walls where they're giving you your meals, they're making you go to meetings, they're telling you when to go to bed, they're giving you your medicine, they're checking in you on you all the time. So lots of accountability. Yeah, and, and but it's forced accountability. Right. So how is, is it really accountability? I mean it is because you're there and you it, it this is a state where you can walk out whenever you want. But once you move after the 30 days and you go to a sober living or you go back to your house or your family or your situation, uh, if you don't have that tool belt loaded, mm-hmm. relapses are going to happen. And then that just starts the cycle all over again because you'll have family members say, we just went through this. How can we do this again? Yep. You know, this was just so much money to put you in there. And we put our lives on hold and, and, and let you go get better for 30 right. days. And why aren't you better? Right. And that's that is that is one thing that I really wish I would have understood is setting realistic expectations. Nobody wants to hear that relapses happen, but I'm here to tell you they happen and they're a part More of often re- than not. And they're a part of recovery. And so what do you do? Do, do? do we shame them going back into full-blown addiction? Because that's normally what happens. Truly. And, and think about it. I mean, just realistically, would that help? No. Someone who's already feeling pretty terrible about themselves. Yeah. Um, what it's going to do is it's going to force you back into the lie because the, your family member wants to believe that you're okay. And you don't want to come out and say that you've been messing up again and you've fallen back. So we're just going to start our lie process all over again, which is going to take us that much more time to identify that there's a problem and then to f- start talking about the solutions. So I remember I'm out of rehab. And uh, I've got about probably 60 days under my belt and uh, I'm driving and my mom calls and I answer it and she goes, hey, and I go, hey, she says, how you doing? I go, I'm doing pretty good. And she goes, aren't you just glad we will never have to do this again? (laughs) And I went, uh, and I just said it just like that. Uh, and she goes, what do you mean? Uh, and I go, I don't know, mom. And she goes, and and all the. And, and bless her soul, but she got heated. She goes, how are you going to tell me that this is going to happen again? I can't believe this. After all that we've gone through, are you going to? And I go, no, I'm not telling you that. But I'm not telling you that it'll never happen again. Yeah. You want me to tell you I'll never do it again, so you will sleep easy. Right. But all I can hear is if I ever mess up, you getting mad at me again and telling me what a, I am because I let us all down again. Yeah. And I said, I can't do that. So all I can tell you, mom, is that I don't plan on it today. I don't plan on it tomorrow. And I don't see it in the future. But I, in my brain, I can't tell you that this will never happen again. Because the way my brain works is then I focus on that. Yeah. And that'll be the focus. And I will go to bed and I'll think never. And this and I go, but it's easy for me to eat. I'm not doing it this week. I'm not I doing it this month. I would much rather have someone say like, 
I'm going to try my hardest and but let's let's be realistic about this. And I want to give that person now a soft place to land. Like that's that's my goal. But I understand the other side of it too cuz I was like my mom my mom's an amazing woman and she's given me a soft place to land the majority of my life and it burnt her a, a bunch of times. And I, and I didn't mean to burn her. And and so I get the the hesitation on both sides of it, you know what I mean? But that's when I just started being 100% honest, authentic and saying, "Hey, look, no." Oh, there are many times. Many times that I had to turn my back on Aaron and even towards the end, I mean, I knew he was using. I put it in this, you know, functional addiction bucket, but um at the end of the day, I'd rather have him here. Mm-hmm. I, so let's be honest about it. I phone me if you're going to use the use in the night and you need someone there to make sure that you don't overdose and no one finds you for three days. Like that is not the reality that anyone should have. Mm-hmm. So let's set proper expectations. Let's be realistic. I don't ever want to hear that any one of my love my my loved ones is going to go use again. But I would much rather be realistic that it's a possibility because it's a high likelihood and it has already happened than to not have that person here. It's it's an easy trade off for me being on the other side now. So we've we've talked a little bit about your brother's story, and you were telling me the things that you would do different. Uh, you'd be more open. Uh, you'd be uh, more understanding. And you'd, you, 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 what do you think you guys did right as a family? Did you do something right? Do you think? Oh, totally, totally. We loved that kid so hard. We kept him alive. Yeah, we loved him. And, you know, I, in the beginning of this, you said that that was your biggest failure. And yeah. I wanted to tell you that it's not yours. And I know loved ones take that upon themselves. Uh, sometimes an addict's going to do what an addict's going to do. And it's his life and it's his story. And, and, and they're going to go through it. Uh, I think you did everything right because you loved him unconditionally. Yeah. And you're keeping his legacy alive by talking about these events and now being a part of them that's going to happen in nine different spots across the state of Utah. Yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, I, I say failure because honestly, I believe that failure is good in life. We need it. To- well, if Dr. Matt was here, he would say resistance promotes growth and you've got to have those failures to get to those successes. And it's just a part of life to think that we get through this without any failures is just crazy. Right. And there was there was a strong irony, you know, three years ago when we hosted this event for the third time. And then two weeks after we hosted the event, I lose my brother to an overdose. There's obviously a story that I was meant to learn. um, And I hope that I'm – I feel like I'm honoring him. And I'm happy that more people get access to this information and that I get to share this narrative and people who are struggling – Hopefully, they, you know, they learn a few other things and can set some different um, expectations because, yeah, at the end of the day, it's about keeping them alive. So, And uh, this night is going to hopefully keep their memory alive. And you said it, it, it's, it's about loved ones who we've lost to overdose. But what you're noticing is it's also very healing for family members to go out there and be surrounded by other people who've been affected by this horrible thing. Absolutely. The first year we did the event, I remember um, there was a couple that showed up and they brought this huge framed photo of their daughter who had just recently passed away of an overdose while she was in a treatment center in Texas. And 
they showed up just completely shocked. Um, they didn't know where to go. They didn't know where to put their grief. Um, so this is a place where you can come set your grief and share that among um, other families that are grieving. And it is a place where people who are in recovery can come and also seek solace and community. You know, uh, Dr. Matt and myself, we both strongly believe that the opposite of addiction is an abstinence. It's connection and it's finding those connections. And it seems like August 31st will be a great night to find some connections. Nine different spots across the state. It's called a light to remember. If people want to find out more information about a light to remember, where do they go? Um, a light to remember dot life has a listing of all the events that are taking place. There are links to every event bright that is t- that are taking place in the different communities. So find the locations that's closest to you if you'd like to come out and participate. If that's not an option, there is um, a button on the website that you can click and we will send an at-home kit to you so you can um, honor your loved one and shine your light um, from the comfort of your own home. I love that. Um, before I let you go, um, you know, you said you have an open conversation with your kids and your family members and your loved ones about overdosing and naloxone and all that stuff. Do you happen to know off the top of your head of where people could get naloxone or get those life-saving kits? Um well, they will be available at um, most of these events that are happening. We um, we combine with um, naloxone training to make sure that we can do training and offer naloxone to people. Um, there's also Utah, the Utah Narcan uh, naloxone. Um, they offer that as well. Um, they're the biggest entity in the state where people can grab that. You know, and I think, you know, because we're talking about overdose and August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. Uh, If you have a loved one who's battling with opioids or heroin, it it would be wise for the family to have one of these kits in their house and sit around, whether it's on a family home evening or whatever it may be, and teach everybody how this works, what to look for, where we keep it and, and why we keep it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the horror story. And if and. I, I'm a firm believer that everyone should have this. Um, if you just do a peek and start looking at these stories, I mean, there are 13-year-olds that have overdosed in schools um, because of fentanyl. And then when they go in and investigate, they find that there's lethal doses in this kid's locker and at home that could have killed so many other children. Having Narcan can reduce an overdose immediately. It saves lives. I'm a firm believer everyone should carry these. Be prepared. Be prepared. I love it. Once again, the website for A Light to Remember is alighttoremember.life. Michelle Church, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And don't forget, KSL uh, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. 
KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.